Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. It's good to gather. Hey, any March Madness fans in the house? Anybody? Yeah, two teams have already punched their ticket. Illinois plays this afternoon. I love conference tournaments that begin this week. I believe the best four days of the sports year are the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament that's coming in a couple weeks. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, I love it. In 1981, if we look back to the NCAA tournament, in 1981, DePaul University out of Chicago entered the NCAA tournament as the number one seed overall. They had three future NBA players, professional players. On March 14th, 1981, DePaul was playing unranked St. Joseph's out of Pennsylvania in the second round. They led 48 to 47 with 12 seconds left and their best free throw shooter, Skip Money Dillard at the line. It was a one and one. If he made the first, he gets the second. If he misses the first, it's anybody's ball. So he steps to the line on front end of a one-and-one, and he misses it. St. Joseph grabs the rebound, drab, dribbles the length of the floor, makes a last-second shot, and beats number one ranked DePaul in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Dillard was never the same after that game. He had run-ins with the law. He got involved in drugs. He spent a majority of the next 20 years in prison, and he attributed many of his troubles to that one free throw. He is quoted as saying, that free throw haunted me because I had failed. Maybe our failures aren't as public as Money Dillard's, but most of us are haunted by our failures. And if we're not careful, our failures can define us and shape the decisions we make. They become our identity. Our identity is our failure. Listen, I've lived this. I've let my failures define me and decide my decisions and keep me in a figurative pit where I've felt so bad about myself that I've just wanted to stay there. Maybe you can relate to that. And the good news that I want to proclaim to you this morning, if you're following in your notes, is that Jesus specializes in transforming failures into opportunities for growth. Jesus doesn't define us by our failures. Look at Peter, the leader of Jesus' followers, the leader of the disciples. He failed so many times, yet Jesus still loved him and trusted him to spread the good news to the ends of the earth. In fact, as you read scripture, most of the stories you read are about people who profoundly failed, yet God worked in their lives in significant ways. So today, what if, right? What if we could begin to see failures as a gift and as a learning experience and not a character trait. What if we could do that? I think we'd be a people who experience God's power that is made perfect in weakness, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. And that's my prayer today. We could remove the identity of failure and we could see it as a gift from God to help us grow in our faith. So last week, we jumped back into our study of the Gospel of Mark. And as a reminder, if you're following in your notes, we're spending time with Jesus 
learning how to live the way of Jesus. And so to continue that, I wanna invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter nine, verse 14. Gospel of Mark, chapter nine, it's in the New Testament, about two thirds of the way back in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you or a digital device, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Mark, chapter nine, can be found on page 820 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word. Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter nine. Whenever we read a gospel, it's good practice, we say this before, to read the story that comes immediately before the story that you're studying and immediately after the story that you're studying. And last week as a reminder, Steve taught on the transfiguration where Jesus went up the mountain and he was revealed in all of his glory. No pun intended here, his followers had a mountaintop experience. Today, they come down the mountain and they re-enter the everyday world of brokenness and discord filled with sin and suffering. And we're gonna look at this story in four scenes. Here's the first scene, verses 14 to 19. You can follow in your Bibles or on the screen. This is the first scene of our story today. Jesus and his disciples have just come down the mountain. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Scene one, Jesus comes down the mountain. His disciples are engaged in an argument with the teachers of religious law. As a review, these guys are gonna show up again and again in the gospel. They're the guys who are the most studied, most religious, most important in Jewish society. And I don't wanna paint them as all bad. They loved God. They loved God, they loved his word, but their job was to point the Jewish people to God. And Jesus had been teaching and healing now for almost two years, demonstrating that he was God. And these religious, religious leaders don't wanna believe it and they won't believe it. To the contrary, they think Jesus is blaspheming God, which was punishable by death. And what's happening here is the disciples are guilty by association. And I think we see in verse 17 and 18, if you look in your Bibles, what they're arguing about. The disciples failed attempt to heal a little boy who's possessed by an evil spirit. That's what the argument's over. Some would say the little boy is struggling with what sounds a lot like epilepsy today. But the scriptures make clear that it's an evil spirit behind these symptoms. And please hear me say this, hear me say this. That's not always the case with a medical diagnosis, but it's that, that is happening here in this case because scripture tells us that it's not just physical, it's spiritual. And I'm sure the argument went something like this. If this Jesus says he's God 
And he's given you power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons, which he's done in chapter 3 and chapter 6 of Mark. If Jesus has given them authority and now they can't heal this boy, the religious leaders are questioning the validity of Jesus. I think that's the argument. Now, let me offer a few comments here on impure or evil spirits, because that probably got your attention. So first, let me just name a reality. Sometimes we struggle to believe the supernatural in our Western way of thinking, because what's real to us is what we can touch, see, taste, and smell. But according to the Bible, there is an invisible world filled with real spiritual beings. And the Bible refers to these spiritual beings as angels, as demons, as spirits, as powers, as principalities, as rulers or little g gods, and they're led by Satan. The entire Bible and our lives is set against this backdrop. If you're following in your notes, this is the backdrop. There are two competing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. These kingdoms are at war with each other and they have different goals, different end games. God's desire is that all people would be saved and live in a relationship with him now and forever. And the enemy's primary desire and objective, if you're following in your notes, is that he wants to destroy the image of God in people. He wants to destroy the image of God in people. If we are created to glorify him, then destroying the image of God in people defames God's glory. The Bible says he wants to kill and steal and destroy. And these evil spirits, we see them working today in many different ways. They direct governments, they bring sickness, they promote division, they tempt us to sin, they destroy lives through abject poverty, through abuse, addictions, violence, and unjust laws. So listen, last thing I'll say about evil spirits today. You may not believe in the supernatural, maybe I've lost you, Let me make two comments. One, especially if this is your first time here at Cherry Hills. We don't talk about this every week. We're not obsessed with angels and demons and evil spirits, but we don't shy away from it when it's in the biblical text that we're studying. And when we walk through the Bible, we talk about what's in the text. And in this text, there's evil happening. And here's my second comment. Last thing I'll say. You may not believe what I just said about Satan and angels and demons, but at some point in your life, I guarantee you have or you will attribute something to evil. Mass shootings, war, terrorism, abuse, there's something more going on. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, has a great quote about recognizing the fact that there may be more going on than we can see. He said this, as long as you look at your problems and the problems of the world strictly in terms of flesh and blood, you're going to be inevitably and continually defeated. I believe there is an evil power animating much of the brokenness we see today in our world because the Bible tells us that this is true and it helps us make sense of the world. So Jesus comes down the mountain and he's met with arguing and an evil spirit and Jesus says to them, you faithless people, How long does this have to go on? How long must I put up with you? And this seems out of character for Jesus because I think a lot of us think Jesus is like Mr. Rogers who puts on his sweater and and just says, everything's okay. 
But this shows us that Jesus has emotions. He's frustrated. He's disappointed. And in this instance, he's having a parental moment. This is what I imagine. He's having a parental moment of how many times do I have to tell you? How many times? We'll find out what he was frustrated with in just a few minutes. But for right now, notice this. This is important. Faced with the disciples' failure to heal the little boy or the father and the crowd's unbelief, Jesus doesn't throw up his hands in disgust. He doesn't say, I can't stand you. He doesn't send everybody to their rooms. He engages. He immediately takes action to address the situation. And scene one ends in verse 19 with Jesus saying this, bring the little boy to me. He engages. And we pick up in scene two, chapter nine, verse 20 to 22. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. The father brings the boy to Jesus and he begins having another attack. And I wanna say this right here. This really stood out to me this week in the past couple days. If you're following in your notes, Sometimes when we bring things to Jesus, they get worse before they get better. Right? That is not always the case. Jesus can heal us completely and transform us in a moment. But it has been my experience in spiritual growth when I'm learning something or unlearning something, like a negative thought pattern, it takes time. I remember sitting in my counselor's office when I first started meeting with her just a year ago. And she said, I wanna tell you two things. I'm gonna do my best to help you. And I think I can. And it's probably gonna get worse before it gets better. And she said, it's gonna get worse, not because something new is necessarily gonna pop up. It's gonna get worse because you're finally gonna address some things that have always been there and you've never wanted to deal with them. Or that you've always danced around. And she was right. It's only by walking through the getting worse that sometimes we see and acknowledge our dependence on Jesus. And when we do that, our failures, either our own failures or failures that others have done to us, if we're willing to walk into them and face them, they can become a gift and an opportunity for growth and redemption rather than failures that define our identity. In our story, things seem to have gotten worse because when confronted with the presence of Jesus, the evil spirit throws the boy into another episode in order to destroy him. And and I just have to imagine, I just want us to put ourselves in the father's shoes right now. Right, as a dad of three boys, this father is scared and heartbroken. He sees his only son. The gospel of Luke tells us it's his only son. He sees him maimed and burnt, wallowing in the dirt, staring up at him with an unearthly look in his terror-filled eyes. This father just wants his son to be well. And if the father wants that, then how much more does Jesus want that? A child created in the image of God being tormented by the evil one, there's never been compassion like that of Jesus. 
Maybe this is the father's last hope. He's tried some other things. He's had some measure of faith that this Jesus of Nazareth that he's heard about, he's never met him, he's heard about him. He believes that this Jesus could heal his son. So he comes and he waits at the foot of the mountain and he waited for Jesus to come down. But it's been so long and he's watched his son suffer so much that I'm sure there were serious questions about whether even this Jesus could help. And that's why he says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. And right here, I think this is where time stands still. The father standing face to face with Jesus and this little boy on the ground in between them being tormented. And Jesus responds in verse 23 in this scene. Would you read this in the first gray box on your notes or on the screen with me? These are the words of Jesus. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asked, Anything is possible if a person believes. What an incredible statement made by Jesus. These words are also some of the most misused and abused verses in the entire Bible. People have ripped this out of context and used it to believe and tell others that every wish and prayer will come true and every prayer will be answered if you can just mount enough faith. If you just believe enough, God has to do it because you can control God. And what Jesus is saying is not that our faith can accomplish anything. But if you're following in your notes, faith will set no limits to the power of God. Faith sets no limits to the power of God to accomplish anything. I appreciate what one author wrote about this verse. William Lane paraphrased this verse by writing. Just read this on the screen. It says, as regards to your remark about my ability to help your son, I tell you everything depends upon your ability to believe, not mine to act. When I pray for myself or for others, and you may just want to write this down, it's not a magic saying, but I pray these words frequently. God, I know that you can, and I pray that you will. I know that you can, and I pray that you will. I don't want to limit the power of God. I think there's so many times when we're like this father, right? We have some measure of faith, but there's situations we think that are beyond the reach of God, healings that are beyond his power, people we've prayed for that we think will never become followers of Jesus. We've all prayed, if you can, prayers. And in response to Jesus' words, anything is possible if a person believes. In verse 24, we read, and read this with me in the second gray box. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. The honesty, the guarded hope. We almost feel this guy like straining to have faith. He's unable to fully believe, but he's desperate enough to ask for a miracle. He's desperate enough to ask for the impossible. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Have you ever felt like this straining to have faith in a situation? I don't necessarily like to fly, 
Uh, doctors have some great medicine for that. Um, I like the idea of getting somewhere fast, but I don't like the idea of being 30,000 feet in the air and not in control of the situation. And so Sarah and I were on a flight from Memphis to Springfield a few years ago, and I looked out the window, and there's this giant thunderstorm off to the side, and it looks like we're flying straight into it. And I think to myself, this is weird because we're in a big sky. Like, we could go around this thing. And the guy comes on, he says, uh, buckle up, it's going to get a little bumpy here for a bit. We're going to fly through this thunderstorm. And all of a sudden, we just drop out of the air and drinks and people hit the ceiling and I'm holding Sarah's hand. Remember, I don't like to fly. I'm, I'm holding Sarah's hand and I start praying out loud and I remember the prayer I prayed. I said, God, I am trying to trust you right now, but it's really hard. Faith and doubt were coexisting. Do you see that? Faith and doubt were coexisting. Michael Card writes in his commentary on Mark, in the tangle of the human heart, we sometimes do believe and disbelieve in the same moment. That's so encouraging to me because I've always beat myself up about that. I just don't have enough faith. I must not be a real follower of Jesus. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis that you've gotten. Maybe it's a job situation or a relationship and faith and doubt coexist and you feel like a failure. And get this, this is so important for us. Jesus is not put off by the humble honesty of someone who says, I believe, but I'm struggling here. He, he's not put off by it. He's not put off by someone who says, I have some doubt. I love what Rich Velotis says, a pastor in Queens, New York. If you're following in your notes, he says, doubt is not the enemy of faith. It's the ground out of which faith often emerges. Listen, somebody needs to hear this. You and I are not hypocrites and we don't have a weak faith because our faith isn't perfect. Jesus doesn't say, uh, hey, dad, come back to me when you've worked out all your doubts and you have everything together. He says, bring me your doubts. And when you seek me, you'll learn who I am. You'll learn that I'm trustworthy and you don't need to doubt anymore. Listen, we want to grow to trust Jesus in all our circumstances, to give ourselves to him fully and have a faith that believes God for the impossible. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the man and Jesus doesn't rebuke us for our doubt and our lack of fully developed faith. Our doubt is not a failure if we allow Jesus to speak into our doubt and reveal himself to us in greater ways. I'm so grateful for that. And after this intense interaction, I mean, you just, the, it's so tense between the Father and Jesus. We move now to scene three, verses 25 to 27. And we're gonna move through it quickly, but I wanna pull out just a couple things. Verse 25 says, you can follow in your Bibles. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. First thing we wanna notice, there's no bells and whistles. There's no fireworks, no magic incantations. Jesus heals the boy with a word. 
Jesus doesn't resort to what the exorcists of the times resorted to, like odd recipes or secret prayers or bizarre formulas or medical procedures. He speaks a word. Jesus has power over the darkness. And then we read in verse 26, then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Here's what we miss in our English translations. Mark is using resurrection language here. The words are used in the resurrection stories of Jesus towards the end of the gospel. The words translated here literally say, if you're following in your notes, Jesus raised the boy and he was resurrected. Jesus drives out the evil spirit and he gives the boy new life. Steve said this last week, Mark is brilliant. He's brilliant. Not only does Jesus heal the boy and use resurrection language, it's a signpost of a greater resurrection that we're gonna see later in the gospel of Mark. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the entire Bible points us to Jesus. And now we're gonna move to our final scene, scene four, chapter nine, verses 28 to 29. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, Why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. The healing's over. The disciples are alone with Jesus and they wanna understand what happened. Because again, in chapters three and six, we're told that Jesus sent them out with power and authority to teach the good news of the kingdom and to heal many people of sickness and evil spirits. This is what Jesus was frustrated with back in verse 19. And Jesus' response implies that the disciples failed to heal the little boy because they had not prayed. But I I wanna point this out. Did you notice that Jesus didn't stop and pray before he healed the little boy? He didn't stop and offer a momentary uh, prayer of silence or verbal prayer to God. And what I think this shows us is I think the prayer that Jesus has in mind here, if you're following in your notes, is an abiding relationship with God and a dependence on God. I wonder if the disciples had accomplished some healings and they started to think they were the reason for the healings. One author captured what Mark is trying to communicate. This author wrote, Mark is suggesting that self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it is in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. The disciples' negative example shows us what happens when we start depending on ourselves rather than living with a sense of complete dependence on God from which sincere prayer springs. To quote Michael Cardigan, his commentary is one of my favorites on the gospel of Mark. You can see this on the screen. He says, to pray is to totally give the situation over to God, allowing his power to redeem the situation. The disciples were trying to cast out the demon in their own power. Instead, they need to learn to completely depend on God's power working through them. Jesus confesses that even he can do nothing without the Father. 
If I'm completely honest with you, I have to remind myself about this again and again every time I teach. I I can jump right into studying and writing. I love to do that. And then the Holy Spirit reminds me like on Tuesday, hey, Brian, have you prayed about this? Have you asked God to use this in ways you can't even imagine yet? And I'll just have to close my computer and confess that I was relying on myself more than I was depending on God. And I believe with everything in me that the most important aspect of preparing to teach, whether you're a small group leader, a Bible study leader, or you stand up here and teach, the most important thing that we can do in preparation is an abiding relationship with God and a dependence on him. He can do more than we ever could. And this is the gift that Jesus gives the disciples. They failed, right? They failed. But this is the gift that Jesus gives them. He uses the failure to instruct them for their future ministry because they're gonna go out again. And they're either gonna rely on themselves or they're gonna remember this moment where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is so important for us to remember as we live out the mission that God's given us. So as we close, I was thinking about how how do we bring this home? And I felt led to have us look at this story through the three main characters, three different situations, but they all provide us with one powerful lesson. If you're following in your notes, we never advance beyond our need for God. We never get beyond our need for Jesus. You may wanna circle the character or characters that you identify with as we walk through this. First, the boy that's held in bondage. Maybe you identify with the boy and that you need freedom from something, right? Maybe you're here, there's some weird things going on in your life, you can't explain them. Night terrors, fear, uncontrollable anxiety, stuff from your past, continuous sickness, a stronghold in your life or an addiction. Do you need freedom from something? Or there's something in your life you feel enslaved to. Maybe it's a relationship or money or pornography or self-righteousness or legalism, your work, your anger, your sexuality. What do you feel enslaved to that you perceive provides you with security, significance, or belonging? And this struggle has you feeling like a failure. Listen, I don't know if an evil spirit is causing that, but maybe. We don't think there's a demon behind everything, but maybe there's more going on than we think. What is it that you need to be set free from? You have tried in your own power and it hasn't worked. Where do you need to see the kingdom of God break into your life? Where do you need to see a move of God? Where do you need to experience a resurrection? Today can be the day you go to God who has the power and authority over evil and sin. And you can pray this prayer, God, I know that you can set me free and I pray that you will. I know that you can, I pray that you will. Maybe you identify with the little boy. The second character in the story is the father who struggled with doubt. Today, you can honestly tell Jesus about your doubt and I don't know what your doubt is. Maybe your doubts are about the existence of God. You don't know if he's real. You don't know about this Jesus guy. You you doubt his goodness. Maybe you feel like he's let you down and you don't know if you can trust him. 
Maybe you've prayed for something for so long and you haven't seen that prayer answered in the way you wanted and you wonder if your prayers make any difference anymore. And your doubt has led you to feel like a failure. You feel like Jesus would be mad at you or want nothing to do with you for doubting. So what if today you get honest with God and yourself You name your doubts and you ask Jesus to reveal himself to you in new ways that redeem and strengthen your faith. The Bible tells us in James 4, 8, when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Today can be the day your doubt is the ground out of which faith emerges. But you have to get honest. And you have to get real with God. He'll only meet you where you are. And the third and final character in our story are the followers of Jesus, the disciples. And like them, maybe you find yourself in a place where you need to renew the practice of prayer in your life. You need to renew an abiding relationship with God and a dependence on God. Maybe you used to spend time with God in his word and prayer, but you've gotten away from that practice and you feel like a failure. You're like, I don't even know where to start anymore. I don't know if I can approach God because he's gonna be mad at me because I quit reading his word or praying for a while. Or you just don't know how to pray and you feel embarrassed and you feel like a failure because of that. Or maybe there's areas of your life where you've started relying on your own abilities and competencies or where you've given up on God. Today, you can ask God to give you a desire to abide with him and depend on him instead of leaning on your own abilities or understanding. So what character do you most identify with? There are some days I just circle all three. Where are you today? What what is the character you most identify with? Or let me ask that in a different way. If you're following on your notes, the last line, what failure do you need Jesus to transform? What failure do you need him to transform into an opportunity for growth? Because the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to take our failures and turn them into something beautiful to take our failures and deepen our faith. They aren't meant to be our identity. They're meant to be opportunities to give ourselves more fully to Jesus. So we wanna give you the gift of stillness for the next few moments in this busy, loud world. And I wanna invite you to answer that question. Who do you identify with? What failure do you need Jesus to transform? Offer that to God. Be honest with him. And rather than letting it define you, allow him to speak good news over you that he can grow your faith. So whatever it is, use this time to bring that to the altar before Jesus and allow him to do what only he can do. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.